My thanks to Reverend Jessica. Thank you very much for this warm introduction and welcome to preach here at Asbury Chapel. It's a, it's a great honor to be with you and to share in this act of worship. I bring greetings to you from the church in Sri Lanka, especially the Methodist Church where Denise and I worship. Uh, and I discovered that there is a deep connection between the Methodist Church in Sri Lanka and the Methodist Church in North America when I went to uh, my first visit to your dining commons. And I noticed that it was called Coke's Corner after Thomas Koch, the first bishop of the North American Methodist Conference. Uh, I'm sure you did not know and I did not know the connection that Thomas Koch was the one who led the first mission, uh, Methodist mission to Asia, and the first mission was to Sri Lanka. And Thomas Koch, in his later years, uh, developed a deep burden for the salvation of those who lived in Sri Lanka, then called Ceylon, under the British. And he asked the Methodist Conference in the UK if he may be allowed to uh, lead a mission to Ceylon. But they said, you're too old for it. And they refused him for some time, but then finally acceded to his request. So he raised the funds himself and gathered up a small team of young missionaries and their wives and set sail on the 30th of December, 1813. But Thomas Koch never made it to Ceylon. On the 2nd of May in 1814, he died at sea. But the, the missionaries that he had gathered made it on the 29th of June that year, and uh, the Methodist mission was born. Thomas Koch did not make it, but his vision did, and his mission did. And we are here as a testimony to the power of the, 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 the kind of mission and the vision of men like him. Scandalized and provoked, Jesus in the face of Pharisees and Sadducees. Between the Italian mainland and Sicily is a narrow, narrow uh, strait called the Strait of Messina, which is thought to have inspired that ancient myth about Scylla and Charybdis. These are two monsters that devoured any mariners that came within their grasp. So seafarers had to be extremely careful when they navigated this strait, because on the Sicily side were the treacherous rocks that symbolized Scylla, the six-headed monster. And on the Calabria side was a dangerous whirlpool that symbolized Charybdis. It is from this story that we have this English idiom, caught between Scylla and Charybdis. Now I know, and I know we have a more familiar idiom, caught between a rock and a hard place, but I thought that this was more exotic. During Jesus' public ministry, he constantly faced the danger of being between the Scylla of the Pharisees and the Charybdis of the, of the Sadducees, the two Jewish sects that dominated the public life of Israel. Phariseeism formed the treacherous rocks of legalistic Jewish religion. That was, of course, based on orthodoxy and the Hebrew scriptures, but had been expanded to hundreds of traditions that suffocated the lives of ordinary people. On the other side was the whirlpool of opportunistic Jewish religion, of the Sadducee variety. It was motivated by politicking and greed, and through the control of the Jewish temple, exploited the spiritual needs of ordinary people. Although they together constituted the Sanhedrin, you and I know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were reputed to be sworn enemies. Their primary dis disagreement, of course, was their regard with, uh, with regard to their beliefs. The Pharisees were conservatives and accepted the Hebrew Bible in its entirety. But the Sadducees were, were liberal and only accepted a third of the Tanakh as Holy Scripture. On this score, of course, Jesus made his sentiments very clear. The conservative Pharisees were right in principle, 
and the Sadducees were wrong. He was very clear about it. He once told the people, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But then he added, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. But on, the, on another occasion, when some Sadducees came to him with a trick question about the resurrection, Jesus made his opinion of them very clear. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Jesus was throughout in the face of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Our two texts from Matthew 15 and Matthew 21 show us how challenging it was for Jesus to minister with the legalistic Pharisees on the one side and the opportunistic Sadducees on the other side. You see, Jesus' loyalty to the word of God and his faithfulness to the mission of God brought him into sharp conflict with those who misdirected religion as a means to personal gain. In Matthew 15, verse 1 to 12, we see Jesus being encountered by the Pharisees in Galilee. Their problem is that Jesus' disciples don't practice hand-washing before they eat. And so it says in Matthew 15, verse 1 and 2, Then some Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. You see, their teaching was based, of course, on the Old Testament requirement of cleanness and being right before God. Uh, but they had translated it into things like the washing of hands because they argued that when you moved around in society, you would get contaminated with things without your knowledge. And so they developed a tradition that the washing of hands would somehow symbolize your commitment to be clean. But the tradition had taken over. And how does Jesus respond? He knows that the Pharisees had elevated their traditions above the word of God. So he says in verse 3, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your traditions? Again in verse 6, You nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. Having called out the Pharisees on their vain infatuation with tradition, Jesus tries to liberate the people from the burden and the shackles of Pharisaic legalism. And so he says in verse 10, Jesus called, to the crowd, uh, called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into your mouth does not defile you, but what comes out of your mouth is what defiles you. Traditions are important, but only as much as the garnishing around the turkey. It's great to have the sage and the rosemary and the thyme, but I don't think any of us will be amused today if at Coke's Corner those great herbs have replaced the turkey. In one of his books, Charles Swindoll tells of the time he was driving down the freeway and saw the sign for a diner, and it was called the Church of God Grill. He was curious about the, about the name, so he says that the next town he pulled over and pulled out a yellow pages, because in those days you had to use the yellow pages, and called the number. And he heard someone answer, Hi, this is the Church of God Grill, may I help you? He said, Hi, I'm a pastor, I'm fascinated by the name of your restaurant. What made you take such a name? And the man replies, oh, pastor, we are the church of God. Some years ago, when we found out that our members were coming to church without breakfast, we opened a diner to provide hot breakfast. After some time, the diner got more popular, so we closed the church and ran the diner. <laughs> the disciples came to him and said to Jesus, how offended the Pharisees were. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know 
that the Pharisees were offended when you heard this. The word there means scandalized, comes from the Greek word scandalon. The Pharisees were scandalized by Jesus' criticism of their traditions. In the 1980s, Sri Lanka was in the throes of a brutal and protracted civil war. Hundreds were dying and thousands were being displaced. In order to gain some control over the situation, uh, the government of Sri Lanka invited the Indian army to help. And so India sent 120,000 troops into the theater of war. And suddenly, among three million people, you had close to 300,000 troops of three different armies. And there was bound to be casualty. Soon there was so much casualties mounting up, there were 500,000 internally displaced people languishing and starving in refugee camps. It was October, it was close to Christmas. 200 miles away we were. And what were the churches doing? You can imagine. Planning for the big day in December, when we can bust up on our traditions. Decorations and carols and Christmas trees and cake. Our fellow citizens were starving in the north, but our favorite traditions had become sacrosanct. The Christmas tree had trumped our love for the neighbor. A few young Christians met together and asked themselves what the gospel demanded of the church. To their surprise, they discovered and rediscovered that the birth of Christ was not associated with pomp and pageantry. It was in fact associated with marginalization and poverty and displacement and humility. That the incarnation was precisely about God's identification with humanity in its lowest places. It meant that the celebration of the incarnation could only be authentic when it becomes wholly about the glory of God and wholly about the love of the neighbor. So they thought they'll write a letter to the churches to rethink how we must celebrate Christmas that year. They gave the letter a provocative title. Let's abolish Christmas this year. I can tell you it did not go down very well in several quarters. Charges of Marxist influence over our Christian youth were heard. It was thought to be a scandalous idea. But was it scandalous? It made reflective believers put aside their Christmas money towards a refugee fund. It, made, it funded the first truckloads of relief to the starving refugees even before the government could get it there. And it changed the way many Christians thought about Christ's incarnation for the rest of their lives. But Jesus was also in the face of the Sadducees in Matthew 21. Verse, one, uh, verse 12 to 16, we find Jesus in the temple after his triumphal entry. And what does he see? He sees a market. But there were thousands before him and thousands with him that were coming to the same place. And they saw a temple. But Jesus saw a market. The Jewish pil pilgrims who streamed to the temple needed to exchange their currency to temple currency. And they had to obtain the right quality of sacrificial animals and birds. And there was a market on the Mount of Olives that served that purpose. It had been long established. But the high priests and his coterie had decided to set up their own rival market in that ancient spirit of capitalism, in the outer court of the Gentiles. What a convenient spot, large and empty and useless. Why don't we set up a market in the outer court? In any case, it's for those Gentiles and for those people who are not qualified to enter where the Jewish uh, the court of Israel is. And so this way they controlled the wealth of the Jewish devotees. But in the process, they robbed the Gentiles. They robbed the marginalized. And they robbed the disabled 
from their space for worship and prayer. So what does Jesus do? The Bible says that it's, it says that he said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And then he proceeds to aggressively cleanse the temple in that familiar story that we all know. No half measures in the face of liberal and opportunistic religion. As a result, Matthew writes, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. And the children were shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. But this did not go down too well with the chief priests and the scribes. The Bible says that they were indignant. It means they were provoked to anger, scandalized and provoked. The Pharisees scandalized on the one side and the Sadducees provoked on the other. It is very clear then that Jesus was not about winning friends and influencing people. No, his stance was scandalous to legalistic religion and it was provocative to opportunistic religion. But to the people of God, it was good news and it was liberating. This then is the question. How did Jesus succeed in charting a course between the Scylla of the, of the Pharisees and the Charybdis of the Sadducees? When we look at the life and ministry of Jesus in the four Gospels, we become increasingly aware that he plotted his course on two convictions, the final authority of the scriptures and the supreme value of his mission on earth. To Jesus, the holy scriptures were divine, authoritative, inviolable, and all-sufficient. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. But alongside his conviction on the authority of the word of God, Jesus had a conviction about his mission of saving humanity from sin and from its consequences. He said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. The word of God was the means. The mission of God was the end. And Jesus made sure that he was loyal and faithful to both. This unwavering commitment to the authority of scripture and to the supreme importance of his mission is what gave Jesus the courage to navigate the straits of that first century of first century Judaism between the Scylla of legalistic religion and the Charybdis of opportunistic religion. What about us? Are we willing to chart these difficult waters, neither crashing on the rocks of merely traditional legalism and religiousness, nor being drawn into the vortex of novel and heady opportunistic religiousness? Will we be, will we be loyal to the authority of the scriptures? And will we be passionate about our mission? Will we care deeply about the truth and at the same time also care deeply about the neighbor? May Asbury Theological Seminary be your time of formation to inspire you to hold more strongly to these twin commitments as you help to steer the church through her straits of Messina, safe past the rocks of conservative traditionalism and safely away 
from the currents of liberal opportunism. May I ask you to take a moment in silence as we reflect on what the Lord has said to us in his word. Jesus Christ, our King, we pause and humble ourselves before you. You are our model, our example. And we fix our eyes again on you, Lord, that in the brief time we have on this earth, we may be faithful. In your name we ask.